Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 9. Uh, we'll begin today in verse 13. Uh, this is, uh, remember, we're in the third section of Revelation. Uh, first section was the seven churches of Asia Minor. Second section was seven seals. And now we're in the third section, seven trumpet judgments. And uh, as we've said in weeks before, these trumpets are aimed specifically at those without Christ. Uh, trumpets are, are geared towards people who are lost. They are warning trumpets, calling them to turn from sin to trust in Christ. And we are at the sixth trumpet judgment uh, this morning, and that comes in verse 13. These are very important to get a grip of and a grasp of. I think uh, understanding, seeing these seals and these trumpets really help us understand the world when we look at it in this age. And when we see what's going on and, and read what the seals and the, and the trumpet judgments contain, we understand that God, yes, is sovereign over this world. And a lot of the things we see are his doing, and he's using them to... Uh, punish unbelievers and purify believers, uh, this gives us a grasp of current events. So looking at Revelation 9, beginning in verse 13, let's read our passage uh, together this morning. The Word of God says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is God's inerrant, holy, and inspired word. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Okay, we changed the batteries. There we go. So, it, it's your fault? Oh, okay. Of course it's not your fault. <laughs> Cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war is a quote from William Shakespeare in his play, Julius Caesar. Caesar has just been assassinated and Mark Antony, you see, standing there in the center. Uh, one of Caesar's generals stands over his body and hoping to avenge Caesar's death. Uh, Antony utters these uh, fairly well-known words, cry havoc and let's slip the dogs of war. He's uh, attempting to stir up the citizens of Rome uh, to rise and hunt down those that have just assassinated uh, Caesar. In verse 13 of chapter 9, we hear a different voice, a far more commanding voice a voice with far more authority than Mark Antony. And while his voice doesn't use the same words as Mark Antony, his words have the same effect. His command, let's slip or let's loose 
the dogs of war. Look at the voice from the altar that you see in verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. First of all, we see that this voice is a powerful voice. Uh, who does John hear speaking in this powerful and most commanding way? We, we get a clue uh, from the next verse. Look at the effect this voice has, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This voice John hears possesses authority, great authority. This voice has the authority to command the angel with the trumpet, and, and this voice has the authority to release fallen angels from their chain, chains. <clears throat> this is a good indication to us that the voice speaking in verse 13 is none other than Christ. For who beside God the Father possesses authority like this? Christ himself says in uh, chapter 1, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. <coughs> then in the Great Commission, Christ says, <coughs> All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And yet again in Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus says, And he, the Father, put all things under his feet. <coughs> Beg your pardon. And over all things, and gave him his head over all things to the church. The voice we're hearing in verse 13 is the voice of of Christ, the voice of command, the voice of authority, uh, the one enthroned at the right hand of God. We saw him enthroned in chapter 5. Enthroned is the ruler of the universe, the one with authority to unseal God's scroll that contains the plan for the conclusion of history. This is who's speaking in verse 13. Uh, Christ continues to rule history Take note, he is in charge, in command, sovereign over the events we're about to read about today. There was a gentleman named Neil Martin. He was a member of the British government. And he was once giving a group of people from his, uh, his district, his voters, he was giving them a tour of, of the House of Parliament in London and showing them around uh, where Parliament met and the House of Lords met and all these different places. And during the course of, of his tour, the group happened to meet a friend of his, uh, Lord Halisham. Uh, he was the uh, Lord Chancellor at that time, and that office came with some regalia, uh, a robe, I believe, possibly a, a powdered wig, and Lord Halisham recognized Martin among the group and the tour, and he cried out to his friend, Neil! And the tour group promptly fell to their knees. We see a much more commanding and powerful voice here in verse 13. Jesus commands the events we're about to see. The second thing we see here, not only do we hear a powerful voice, we see powerful prayer. Uh, powerful prayer uh, is what moves Christ to speak. Look again at verse 13 and notice from where Christ speaks. The, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. We've already seen this golden altar two times in our study of Revelation. If you just flip over a page to chapter 6 and look at chapter 6, verse 9, and look at uh, what happens when uh, Christ opens the fifth seal. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, this is the same altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
see this golden altar again. It's, it represents the altar of incense. There was an earthly copy that stood before the curtain, the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and temple. This is the heavenly version of that, uh, right before the most holy place. It comes up again in chapter 8. Just flip back now and look at chapter 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar. Here's the same altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of this, all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. From this golden altar, prayers of the saints, enabled by the, the intercessory prayers of Christ, assemble before the throne of God and, and contribute to the conclusion of world history. And here in chapter 9, verse 13, we see this same altar representing the prayers of all the saints, representing all those who have faithfully prayed, our Father who, are, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. All those who have prayed that prayer are represented here at this altar of incense, this golden altar. And here in chapter 9, verse 13, we see those prayers prompting Christ to unleash this woe, this a thing contained in the sixth trumpet. See, prayer works alongside and is intertwined with the sovereign plan and purpose of God. It is the driving force behind this sixth trumpet. God is sovereign over history, and one of the things he has decreed is that your prayers go into his plan to bring about the conclusion of history. I don't know how that works, and I'm pretty sure you don't either, but this just reveals to us how much our prayers matter. This was decisive in the Exodus from Egypt as well. Uh, listen to this from Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So consider how vital your prayers are to bringing about the conclusion of history. Your prayers matter. Listen to this example from Dr. Doug Kelly, and he shares this account. Sometimes I visit Romania where I met Cornell Iova, a pastor whose wife, whose first wife got a particular form of cancer in her 30s. It was treatable, and Christian friends in Great Britain sent word to Pastor Iova that they would pay for him and his wife to fly to London. They lined up treatment for her at a hospital where all their needs would have been gladly taken care of by British Christians. At this time, however, Nikolai Ceausescu, I... I always screw up the name, I'm sorry. Uh, you should see how it's spelled, and you'd, you'd mess it up too. Ceausescu, I believe, was exercising total power as president of Romania. He hated Christians and did everything he could against them. So when Pastor Iova and his wife applied for a passport, the authorities sent word to the minister that he would receive no passport whatsoever unless he and his wife would renounce their faith in Christ. In that case, the government would gladly issue him a passport to go to London where his wife could be treated. The decision of this devout Christian couple, of course, was clear. They honored Christ, and the minister's excellent wife suffered through 
for several months until the cancer took her. But in the same month she died, Ceausescu was brought down. Christians had prayed and prayed and prayed, and near the end of 1989, he was brought down. In fact, it was on Christmas Day that Ceausescu and his wife were executed on national television. In the providence of God, the minister's wife lived one week after the dictator's execution. Her mind was perfectly clear, so before she left her earthly home, God let her see that prayers had been answered against the great persecutor of the church in Romania. She lived to see this man brought down. The prayers of the saints have a way of bringing down evil persons and structures if one persists in those prayers. Well, how then should you and I pray in the midst of persecution opposition, and oppression, uh, and injustice. Uh, we should pray, first of all, that God would bring wicked oppressors down by converting them. This, of course, is entirely within his power to do, as Proverbs says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is like a garden hose to the Lord God Almighty. It's nothing to direct the flow. And this is how Christ ended Paul's reign of terror. He converted him on the road to Damascus. So we should pray for uh, oppressors, that God would bring down evil rulers by converting them. But if, what if God chooses not to convert them? Then we should simply pray that God would prevent them from carrying out their evil plans and remove them from authority. Again, this is clearly in his power to do. As Daniel 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. If you're familiar with Daniel, you know what he did to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 of Daniel uh, turned him uh, into a cow for a period of time, acted like a, a cow. If God does not convert evil rulers, the second way we pray is that he would prevent them from carrying out their plans and remove them from power. We should do this because our prayer has power to change the course of history. Christ accomplishes his sovereign purpose in concert with the prayers of his saints. We see, to begin with then, this first characteristic of the sixth trumpet, the voice from the altar. It is powerful, and it is moved by powerful prayer. There's another characteristic of this trumpet I want to show you, and that's angels from the Euphrates, or if you prefer Euphrates, as Bill and Ted would say. Uh, Christ, by his sovereign authority, releases fallen angels prepared for this very moment. The first thing you see here is their restraint. Uh, these fallen angels had been bound at the edge of civilization. Look in your Bible at verse 14. Again, Christ is speaking, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Bound is literally to keep tied up or to keep in chains. And these four uh, fallen angels had been spiritually restrained by the powerful hand of God. Uh, and that they are bound indicates that they're evil angels, fallen angels who fell along with Satan and were cast out of heaven because they're bound the way fallen angels are bound. We looked at this verse last week, Jude 6. And the angels uh, who... Uh, did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Well, these angels are released. And further, it says that they're, 
they were bound at the great river Euphrates. If you think back to your grade school geography, this, this blue line across the map here is uh, the Euphrates River, one of the main bodies of water flowing through the Near East. Uh, but recall that Israel, whoops, here, thank you, Gary, way over here uh, on the left side of the page, you can see Israel here. And so uh, the Euphrates would have been the absolute edge a civilization to people in the world of the Bible. The Assyrians and the Babylonians invaded from the direction of the Euphrates. In John's day, the Euphrates marked the edge of the Roman Empire, and the dreaded Parthians were on the other side of the Euphrates, uh, uh, that ancient boundary. And so one Bible scholar with this in mind says, that in these chapters filled with symbols, we should probably regard the Euphrates River in a figurative sense. John uses it here to mark the edge of the civilized world. And he goes on to say the boundary between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and that of Satan. And so with this sense of the Euphrates in mind, uh, verse 14 reveals four fallen angels, the forces of chaos and violence held in check from our world by the powerful and sovereign authority of Christ. They are restrained at the edge of civilization by Jesus Christ. Are you doing this or am I doing this? You're doing it, okay. So we see their restraint. The second thing we go on to see is their release. Look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. I want you to look carefully at this first phrase in verse 15, and I want you to see and hear the precision of God's clock and the pinpoint accuracy of his plan in this phrase. It's uh, specific almost beyond belief. Four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. He has meticulously planned for the release of these fallen angels at precise moments in history, his divine timetable has determined exactly when these demons of chaos and violence would be set loose on the world. God carries out his sovereign purpose in exacting detail. I want you to think about this first from Acts 7, 26, in uh, uh, Paul's prayer uh, on, uh, on the Areopagus in, in Athens, and speaking to the crowd, he says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. When Rome fell, it's because it was time for Rome to fall, according to God's clock. So we're conscious of our clocks, especially today. I can see the effects on some of it in your faces this morning. Um, and in previous days, people used to rely on two places to determine time with pinpoint accuracy. One was the uh, United States Naval Observ Observatory in Maryland. And the second, the clock to end all clocks, was the Greenwich Observatory. You've heard of Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, this is where uh, people would set their times to Greenwich Mean Time plus this number of hours. Now we have atomic clocks in our homes that you don't have to set. They uh, connect to a satellite. The watch I'm wearing today, I don't have to set. I keep it by my bedroom window and all by itself. Uh, a satellite tells me what time it is. I didn't have to adjust it for day, but like savings time this morning. Um, God's clock is precise 
It's a staggering thing to think of is there is not a hiccup and not a lapse in all the universe, in all time, where God's not working to unfold his plan. And of course, the precision of his clock extends to your very life. It extends down to you today. With pinpoint accuracy, he directs the events of your life and mine. Pinpoint accuracy. Consider this verse from Matthew's gospel. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're nothing. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. All the birds in your backyard... Oh, the ridiculous number of birds in your backyard. Even those blackbirds that come out in springtime, and there's like a million of them. They are governed by the plan of God, according to the word of God. But look at this next phrase. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of us, it's getting easier and easier for God to keep track. (laughs) But some of you, I won't mention names, have a full head of hair and God has to work overtime to... Our sovereign God directs the course of history as well as the course of our lives with pinpoint accuracy. And then further, God determines, God describes, uh, John describes rather, God's determined purpose for these angels. And that comes in the next phrase of verse 15. Let's read it again. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. In his judgment on the world of unbelievers, God allows these fallen angels to take on, uh, to take life on a massive scale. Remember that these trumpets are warnings of God's judgment. And he's warning the world of unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth. The phrase John uses again and again, earth dwellers, not believers, but earth dwellers, and those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. That would be believers. This is a judgment aimed at all those who've never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord. Again, this trumpet is a warning, and he's blowing this trumpet through warfare to call people to repent, to turn to Christ. These angels are released at these precise moments to take a third of mankind. So we see in this sixth trumpet, the second characteristic, first we the voice from the altar, second we see the, the angels from the Euphrates. Let's go on to the third characteristic of this uh, trumpet judgment. It's the mayhem of war that the last verse hinted at. There are two things to see here, and the first thing I want to point out to you is the masses that assemble for war in verse 16. It says the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Suddenly from four fallen angels, uh, we see mounted troops twice 10,000 times 10,000, or more literally the text says a double myriad. If you remember back in chapter 5, we read about myriads and myriads of angels praising God at the enthronement of Christ. There there are at least one occasion in the New Testament where a myriad means 10,000. But it's often more the case that a myriad refers to, quote, a large number not exactly defined. We said that John couldn't count the angels that were around the throne. There were so many. And here in verse 16, he says there were a double myriad, referring to 
uh, quote, an indefinite number of incalculable in immensity. Some scholars suggest that instead of a mathematically precise number, 200 million, this phrase, a double myriad, simply represents an overwhelming number of mounted troops. He's describing a vast army that is too large to count. I think that's the way to understand this number. John, at first, is, is sees the masses of mounted troops. And then second, we see the mounted troops themselves in particular. He goes on to describe the appearance of these horsemen and their mounts. In verse 17, it is a most bizarre description. Look what he says, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The breastplates are the breastplates on the troops themselves, probably not the horses. He's describing the armor that the mounted troops are wearing. It says their, their armor is the color of fire. Or more literally, they wore fiery breastplates. They wore breastplates of fire and of sapphire. This is not, we think of the blue gemstone, it's not that their armor had sparkly sapphires embedded in it. This is not the stone, but the dusky blue color that comes from burning sulfur like you see in the slide behind me. And then the next description of sulfur. Sulfur is also known as brimstone or burning rock. And so the armor they're wearing consisted of fire, smoke, and brimstone. And I want you to keep track of how those three things pop up again as we go further in verse 17. Look, look now he moves to the horses in the middle of verse 17. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. What do those three things describe? What's John inferring from fire and smoke and sulfur? Well, in the Old Testament, fire was a basic principle of warfare. You conquer a city and you set it on fire. The hazy blue smoke was a result of that fire, that, that, um, that ancient warfare. Smoke obscured the sun, suffocated the living. And then sulfur or brimstone in the Old Testament uh, represented God's punishment of the wicked. Remember that uh, on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, the Lord rained fire and sulfur down on those cities. And so I want to suggest that what John seems to be describing in these verses is the destruction and devastation of warfare. It's not just one battle he's looking at. It's, this is not a description of the great battle that comes at the end of the age. We'll see that battle described later. John seems to be describing warfare that takes place throughout this age. Remember we said that the seven seals and the seven trumpets, except for the end, the, the day of the Lord, they describe things that are ongoing in this last age. And so, John seems to be describing the warfare that God unleashes on unbelievers at certain moments in history. We've, we've read of this before, and stay with me here now. Flip again back to chapter 6. This is so similar to the first four seals that I think it's important that you see this. The first four seals seem to describe something that's almost exactly the same in verse uh, two, and I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out to, to out conquering and to conquer. 
And when he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And then he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And then when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. It sounds much the same. The difference is the intensity in chapter 9 versus uh, the slightly less intense description in chapter 6. It seems to be describing warfare throughout the age that's, that's been unleashed by Christ to accomplish His purpose. The punishment of unbelievers and the purification of believers. War on a massive and worldwide scale throughout this age seems to be what the sixth trumpet describes. Wars that have taken place throughout history as God pours out His judgment on the unbelieving world. Listen to one of my uh, favorite commentators, his name is Dr. Joel Beakey. He's from Puritan Reform Seminary up in Michigan. He says, when the sixth trumpet sounds, four demonic angels are released to kill a third of humanity by fire, smoke, and brimstone. It hones in on war in particular as the classic example of human destruction. These verses do not describe any particular war, but all war at every time and at every period of history. War, like poverty, is always with us. Not a single generation in human history has escaped war in its devastation. And go on, look at the effect that these mounted troops uh, have in verse 18. Again, it says, by these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. Again, listen to Dr. Beakey uh, explain and, and describe the, 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 uh, the fatalities. Think about the millions of people who have been killed in wars. According to some estimates, between 1480 and 1941, Britain engaged in 78 wars, France in 71 wars, Spain in 64 wars, Russia in 61 wars, the United States in 13 wars, China in 11 wars, and Japan in 9 wars, and still the war drums keep sounding. Another source says, of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace. Let me start again, because I want you to hear this. Of the past 3,400 years, so we're going well before this time in Revelation. Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them. Or just 8% of recorded history. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion. The mayhem of war is the third characteristic of this trumpet. These four fallen angels lead uh, to war on a massive scale throughout the age. And we've seen their number and then the mounted troops themselves. One more characteristic of, of this sixth trumpet 
Lastly, what we see here is a lack, the lack of repentance. In spite of this warning throughout the age that God trumpets through warfare, throughout this call to turn from sin and trust in Christ through, through wars throughout the ages, in spite of these warnings, unbelievers refuse to turn to Him. And we see this lack of repentance in two areas. There's a lack of repentance in their worship. And look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, fire, smoke, and sulfur, that is, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols. I want you to look at that phrase, and I want you to note the close connection between worshiping demons and worshiping idols. Why does John say them in the same breath? The reason is because demonic forces stand behind the idols that people worship. It is not an innocent matter. Uh, demonic forces stand behind the idols that people worship. In a portion of Deuteronomy known as the Song of Moses, uh, it says this in chapter 32, in this part of the song, it's describing uh, Israel in their wilderness wanderings. It says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. And, and we're familiar with this. This much we know. It's what comes in the next verse that we need to see. It says, They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. Here, God's word connects uh, the worship of demons with the worship of idols. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes the same connection in 1 Corinthians 10, which says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Demonic forces stand behind and encourage men and women to worship the works of their hands, like the things that are mentioned next. Idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. What are we talking about here? Uh, Dr. Kelly says, what is an idol according to the Bible? An idol is anything less than God, some aspect of the created order that that you put in place of God. And so it would include things like homes and cars, or careers, or children. Things like sex, success, politics, your individual freedom. An idol is anything that replaces the worship of the one true God. Demons stand behind these and they delight when you let these things usurp the place that God rightfully deserves. They don't repent of their worship, and they don't repent of their works. And we see this in verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. These things in verse 21 often stem from or flow from, or are the result of the worship of false gods. The, the worship of, of your individual freedom can lead to murder. The worship of pleasure often leads to what he refers to here as sorcery. It's the use of potions and drugs. We could, we could almost insert drug use here. Uh, the worship of sex often leads to sexual immorality. The worship of money and possessions often leads to theft that he mentions. There's a lack of repentance in their worship and flowing from that also in their works. And so you wonder, how can, how can this be? How can they ignore God's warnings 
that come through the devastation of war and conflict. And how can they neglect these warnings aimed at drawing them to repentance? I think there's a couple things going on. See, I was taught growing up that all this was way far in the future. And so I, I growing up, I, I, wow, these horses, fire-breathing horses with lion's heads and serpents as tails. You know, I thought, I didn't see those as symbolic as I now do. And I thought, how could anyone see that and not turn to God? And so I would simply say, friend, these things are already happening. John is using symbols here to describe warfare that's been going on for, for millennia. You know how it is with warfare that goes on for a millennia? We get used to it. We're not surprised that wars are raging today. Wars are raging today. Listen to this one man explain it. Even though plagues destroy a third of the world's inhabitants, survivors appear to become accustomed to the repeated calamities. If terms like tidal wave, earthquake, genocide, and ethnic cleansing become common expressions, the population at large begins to take them in stride and refuses to consider the impact and message they convey. God uses these disasters to call human beings to their senses. So they refuse to turn from their worship and their works because they become callous and accustomed to war. You and I must see things differently. We must see world events not just as the ordinary parts of everyday life in the fallen world. Of course, that is true. You and I must view world events as God's warnings to a falling world to turn from false worship and turn from their works to trust in the atoning death of Christ. We must not grow numb to world events, but see them as God's trumpets blaring a call to repentance. This is the fourth characteristic of this trumpet. Uh, there were four that we've looked at today. The voice from the altar, the angels from the Euphrates, the third was the mayhem of war, and lastly is the lack of repentance. So let me just pause here and make an application from this. First, if you're here and don't know Christ, then the, the sirens are blaring. The sirens are blaring. The trumpets are sounding. Friend, God is calling you through, through this pandemic very much like what is mentioned in the fourth seal, death and pestilence unleashed by the fourth seal. He's, he's calling you through these things and he's trumpets to turn to Christ. Those of you who know Christ, the application is, we must not take sin lightly. By the power of God's indwelling spirit, we must put to death that those things that belong to our sinful nature, how determined we must be to distance ourselves from the lust of the eyes the boastful pride of life, and the third one I can't remember off the top of my head from 1 John 2, 14 and 15. We cannot be like the world because it is because of those things that God's judgment comes on those without Christ. Listen to Paul say it. Ephesians 5, 
but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no fool, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Sin is a big deal. And we must treat it like that. And we must not allow it to exist in our lives. Because it's because of sin that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. May God, by His Spirit, give us grace to mortify, put to death, stomp out of existence the sins of the flesh. Let me pray as we conclude. Let me, uh, let us, rather, Father, hear the trumpets, the warnings that have been blaring for quite some time now. And this one in particular, we've seen again and again and again. To our friends without you, Lord Jesus, Please help us to warn them about what that really is. It's a call to return to you, to turn to you, and to turn to the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, also, because this is what's coming on the sons of disobedience, let us not be found living and walking in the darkness, but enable us to walk as children of light. Savior, we ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.